Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 16th, 2011. Tragic news, death of atheist Christopher Hitchens, we'll talk about that a little bit today. It's going to be a shorter program, but it just because I'm trying to do something, I'll explain in a second. I'm always trying to do something. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There, let's just put it this way. There are a bunch of miserable exegetes out there. I mean, of the worst stripe. They are they are so caught up in frivolous things, making sure that the band is rocking, making sure that they've got the lights just right, that the spinners are doing their thing, that, uh, that the mood is set correctly. They've paid attention to every single little detail regarding the cultural hook that they're trying to bring people in with. And they don't spend, like, any time at all, really, in God's Word, making sure that the message that they're bringing is the biblical message. Instead, they're so enamored with their cultural relevance that they have become narcissistic, eisegetes, reading themselves into the text and thinking that this has something to do with Christianity. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's terrible. It's This is a crime that's being committed Sunday after Sunday. And as a result of all of the stuff that's going on out there, we have to report on it and admonish folks uh, to, to do the work of a Berean. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just because somebody comes to you saying, I come to you in the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean that the message they're bringing to you is the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse, read about it. If you're not sure, read Matthew chapter, you know, was it 24? Um, Jesus warns us that false Christs and false prophets are going to come to us in his name. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Okay. If Satan were to show up at your church, you know, with a red suit and a pitchfork, you'd go, that's Satan. We shouldn't listen to him. But see, yeah, see, Satan's kind of not stupid. 
Um, in fact, like not stupid at all. S- Satan knows that if he were to show up and in his true form and and begin preaching from your church's pulpit, that people would be fleeing the building, running for their lives. They would realize they are in mortal, eternal danger. That's why uh, Jesus warns us that Satan comes to us masquerading as an angel of light. And so, you know, or, you know, his his minions come, they're basically wolves dressed up in sheep's clothing. So so that's the idea here is, is that that's the game that's being played. And if you are not aware that that's the game that's being played, that's see, that's how this war is being fought. Okay, when it would read the scriptures, there's so many references to warfare that I mean, you, you that it makes Brian McLaren want to clench his teeth and and uh, and say, you know, horrible, terrible words about the Bible because, you know, he's more of a pacifist type nowadays. But uh, the idea here is, is that we are locked in battle and. The the weird part about it is is that contrary to what you may have believed about yourself, you weren't born on the side of good. Um, like no, you weren't even born in Switzerland. You you can't. You no human being is capable of saying I'm Switzerland. I am neutral in this fight. No, everybody is a combatant on one side or another, and each and every one of us by nature. Uh, from the moment we were conceived, we were born dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature objects of God's wrath and children of the devil, enslaved to sin, death, the devil. And we, by nature, are active combatants against God. We want him dead. It's not that, you know, there's no neutral thing going on here. It's the world isn't full of basically good people. There's no such thing as a basically good person. Uh, each and every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. So that's our default state. So Satan is actively trying to recruit some of his folks, his agents, his children, to do some work in Christ's church and put them into pulpits, into ministry, and other things like that in order to ensure and guarantee that you do not hear the good news. The good news? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The idea here is is that um, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That uh, he was reconciling the world, basically declaring peace by his blood. And we are to go out and declare to the world this good message. Repent. Be forgiven. God is handing out, even in the middle of the war, active pardons, full and complete pardon of all sin for every single hostile act that you have committed against God. And is he's basically saying, I have unilaterally declared peace with you. Repent. Be forgiven. Live. That's the message that we've been given. Satan doesn't want that message getting out, so he puts his lackeys, his minions, his folks into pulpits, and they... In the name of religion, in the name of spirituality, in the name of 
of having some type of an experience of the divine uh, keep you so far distracted that um, that you don't hear that good news or you may have heard it but you know it it doesn't seem to make sense you can't figure out how to connect any of the dots cuz everything else that they preach contradicts it, runs contrary to it. They'll sit there and go, hey, look, we believe the gospel. Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, that's a good deal. But yeah, listen, that just gets you in. Come on over here. We're going to keep you busy. You don't want to be just a Christian. No, 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 no. We want you to be a Christ follower. There's a big difference between Christians and Christ followers. Yeah, Christians, you know, they're kind of subpar, substandard. They're just believers. Yeah, no, no, no. You want to be a Christ follower. You you want to change the world, don't you? We've We've got... We've got some techniques, some tips that you can apply to your life today where you can, well, hear from God and receive from him a grand vision, a big dream, a huge plan for your life that at the end of it, everyone will say, oh, wow, that was, boy, was that person important. You see, you know, God, see, he's got a big plan for you, but you got to get busy. Stop, stop talking about being a Christian. We need you to be a Christ follower. Yeah, all of that's happening in the church today. So we, you know, we're sitting there basically going, uh, no, that's not how this works. And let me tell you why. That's what this program is all about. It's challenging that false doctrine, that false belief, that stuff that undermines the gospel and creates doubt regarding the full and complete pardon won by Christ on the cross and all the obfuscation and blurring and smoke screens that are being preached from pulpits and the narcissistic, eisegetical stuff going on, we challenge that, open up our scriptures, and put that teaching under scrutiny. See if it jives with what God's really revealed. Because God's word is understandable, especially when you read it in context which for some reason a lot of these guys don't like doing that. Makes me wonder, is it possible that they're wolves in sheep's clothing working for the devil who comes to us masquerading as an angel of light? Yeah, I think in many cases that's exactly what's going on. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I told you at the at the opening of the program, today was probably going to be a shorter edition of Fighting for the Faith. And the reason why is because I found two things that when you put them together, the contrast couldn't be sharper. And as a result of it, uh, that's where we're going to spend probably the bulk of the program is on those two things. And you're going, well, huh? I'll explain here in a second, but uh, what, let me let me talk about what we're going to talk about on the uh, the program today. Um, Christopher Hitchens, uh, the uh, one of the new atheists out there, he's uh, he, he's sixty two, uh, was sixty two. Well, he died yesterday, and so we're going to talk about uh, just uh, just ever so briefly about that. And um, he, he, let me let me say this, okay? It, when I saw the news. It really, truly made me sad. I was grieved. It is never, ever good news that somebody has gone into eternity persisting in unbelief and and refusing to receive the free gift of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. This is a tragedy. So we'll talk a little bit about that. 
we'll change um, we'll change gears and then we didn't get to this yesterday and I did want to get to this I want to get to Rev Richards uh, video blog about what's your purpose because good night I have no idea what this is about but I just wanted to play it because yeah, everyone's everyone is all about talking about purpose well apparently this guy by the name of Rev Richard um, and uh, you can find him at Rev Richard Rogers uh, and uh, well, actually, if you go to YouTube and Google, not Google, in the search box at YouTube, although YouTube is owned by Google, go to YouTube and in the search box, just type in all one word, Rev Richard Rogers, and you'll you'll find his account there if you want to see this video. But, I mean, somebody posted this on my Facebook wall, and I was like, huh, what? So I thought I'd pass it along because we do a lot of that here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, so we got that we're going to talk about, and then, you know, I don't know if I want to talk about about this. Yeah, there's a story I'm not even going to mention at the moment because I still have to make the decision as to whether or not I really want to even feature this on the program. But um, so we got Christopher Hitchens. We've got Rev Richards. We'll take a break. And then what we're going to do is we're going to do a compare and contrast. I would like to compare and contrast two completely opposite messages that reference the Christmas story. Okay, the first is by uh, Dr. Albert Muller of Southern Theological Seminary, a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he recently, well, actually, the school recently uh, posted his commencement speech for the winter graduation. So, you know, the, I guess they have several different commencement ceremonies there per year at Southern. Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And the name of uh, Dr. Muller's commencement address is The Gospel as the Foundation for Christian Ministry. We're going to play that. And I just want you to hear for yourself the difference between somebody who believes in the inerrant inspiration of God's Word and another person who doesn't believe that God's word is an errant and inspired historical or anything like that. So I'm going to compare this to a short homily uh, presented by Ian Lawton of uh, C3 Exchange up there in Michigan and uh, his recent sermon entitled Thriving in the Holidays. Now, it's short. It's short, but here's the deal. Some, sometimes brevity is the soul of wit, okay? Um when you just listen to these two things back to back, you begin to realize just what a stark contrast there is between belief and doubt. Such a stark contrast that it's worth noting. And uh, and you, you can see the difference. I mean, it, it's, like I said, you just... Put the two together. So this isn't really a sermon cage fight because Dr. Mueller isn't preaching a sermon. But what I so anyway, you get what I'm going to do. So that's going to comprise the entire program today. It'll be shorter, and that'll allow some of you who are behind on the podcast, you know, to you know, you'll catch up. You won't have 
an extra. <laughs> yeah, I have the tendency to wax eloquent or wax long when it comes to doing things here at the program. So, uh, with that, we're going to d- dive into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience as long as you're experiencing cold weather. You don't want your feet sweating while listening to Fighting for the Faith. That actually tracks from your listener experience. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we do not have a problem with that, so long as you understand the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You really don't want to be enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, with that, we'll dive into the program proper. Here we go. Purpose, it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. Now, normally I reserve this music for Rick Warren, but... So what's mine? Oh, look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. Sing along if you know it. It's a sign. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. All right, yeah, like I said, I normally reserve that for Rick Warren, but I just <laughs> had to play it for this particular update. So Rev Richards, you can find his um, YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Rev Richard Rogers, and uh, he's got a uh, a video that he's recently posted entitled, What's Your Purpose? And uh, this is kind of interesting because this doesn't exactly uh, mimic or... Um, Mirror Rick Warren's theology regarding finding your purpose. Listen in. It just kind of sounds a lot more like what we hear from the culture. Here's Rev Richards. What's your life purpose and why are we here? You know, so many of us have been taught that there was something special that we were here to do. Yeah, I hear that like from seeker-driven pastors on a daily basis. There was something that maybe we were supposed to be the best at. Yeah. We never could really find what that was. You know, when I was a kid, I was taught that there was something that my soul was going to be the best at. And I really believed that. I began to look. And I wasn't wasn't the smartest. I didn't get the best grades. I couldn't be the best athlete. There was always somebody that was better at everything. It was only years later that I realized that the, the only thing that I could ever be the best at was being me. Well, there you go. Just be the best you you ever could be. <sighs> okay. Um, yeah. The, the the By the way, the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, it's 42 in case you haven't figured that out. Okay. So <sighs> this is clever. I mean, this is interesting. But you'll notice there's something missing here from this particular presentation. And that is this. Um the Rev Richards um, doesn't have a Bible open. Yeah, so, you know, all of this purpose talk that we continually hear from people, God has a big dream for your life. He's got a big purpose for you. All you've got to do is 
figure out your shape or do these things or apply these spiritual disciplines or learn how to do listening prayer so you can hear God's voice and then God will whisper it into your heart or something like that. Well, this is the opposite approach. You know, I tried all of that and I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be the best at. So I decided that the solution is to just be the best me that I can be. <laughs> and you'll, here's the deal. Both of them sound really spiritual and all that. Um, but um, listen, um, let's can we, can we just be honest here? Um, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, uh, read the Bible. It falls into the general categories of this. I mean, it's going to sound silly and kind of like, come on, anybody can you know do that. We'll try it. Um, you know, so here here's the deal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh-huh. Honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Um, Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. And, and if you flip it into positives, it, you know, it'd be like, you know, it, rather than not just, just not stealing, help your neighbor. Help your neighbor and befriend him and help him to keep his possessions and help protect him and defend him. You know, things like that. Rather than, you know, lusting after your neighbor's wife, uh, you know, in times of trouble, encourage her to stay faithful to her husband and uh, and to perform her duties as a wife. So husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Children, don't exasperate your fathers. And you're sitting there going... Well, I, how am I supposed to change the world by doing ordinary things like that? Great question. Um, you're probably not meant to change the world, but change diapers. You know, just, you know, I'm just saying, you know, let's continue. That I believe that our life purpose is to simply be who we are. Uh, I believe. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's kind of a, a scary, a scary uh, way to open. I believe our life's purpose is to, you know, do origami and, and to watch anime cartoons. I mean, who knows? Created in the image and likeness of God, that we're created to be expressions of all that God is, but in us, in, and that we are to be the expressions of that spirit, that light, that love, that power, so that our purpose is... Boy, this sounds spiritual, doesn't it? I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear something, and I want to I actually want to highlight it. Listen again. Is to simply be who we are. That we're created in the image and likeness of God. That we're whoa, 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 whoa. Um, yes and no. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. We, um, unfortunately, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and the fall into sin, um, we don't reflect the image of God the way they did. Um, like far from it. Um. We're twisted. We're corrupted. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. You don't believe me? Read Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It actually says that. Um, you know, And then read the tail end of the Gospel of John chapter 3, where it says that if you do not believe in the Son, then the wrath of God remains on you. So, Strange to me, uh, you know, he, you know, you got the Rick Warren approach, you know, apply these techniques, you know, have your shape figured out and to do these inventories and you'll figure out what your purpose is. 
this guy, um, uh, he just feels, he believes that this is the case, and, and now he's making an appeal to the fact that we all are supposed to, you know, uh, reflect the Imago Dei or Imago Dei. And the problem is, is that, yeah, no, um, you and I, because we are natural descendants of Adam and Eve, do not by nature reflect the image of God. Now, granted, we technically were created in the image of God, but it's busted. It's broken. It's, it's, I've used this metaphor before, you know, uh, who I, I got it from Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, we're the equivalent of a cathedral who's had its, you know, innards blown out by a bomb, you know, and, uh, you know, or a fire. And the only thing left is, you know, broken stained glass and charred pews and, and rubble. Um, you could tell at one time that it was something great, but yeah. So when guys like this make appeal, oh, well, we reflect the image of God. We are something great. <sighs> This is a way of of undermining and or tacitly denying the doctrine of original sin. So um, let's continue with Rev. Richards. Here we go. Who we are. That we're created in the image and likeness of God. That we're created to be expressions of all that God is, but in us. And, and that we are to be the expressions of that spirit, that light, that love, that power. So that our purpose is to know who we are and to express that in the greatest possible way. Uh-huh, yeah. Today, I want you to recommit to being the greatest version of you. R- really? You want me to recommit to being the greatest version of me? Are you going to have an altar call for this? With your strengths, your abilities, your joys, your sadnesses, your human flaws, all the qualities that make you, you, I want you... Whoa, wait a second. You want me to embrace even all of my flaws? Weird, because if you were to kind of do a logical regression here, okay, if he's basically saying, since we all reflect the nature and image of God, God wants us to be basically committed to being who you are already, including your flaws... Um, by logical regression, you would then be able to say that God has flaws. Yeah, the, the dangerous teaching now. To recommit that your life purpose is to be the greatest expression of you. Because you're the only one that can be you in the world and bring your gifts to the world. You're the only one who could be you. Oh. See, once we discover that our real purpose is just to be ourselves, then we... Yeah, did you, did you give a single Bible verse to back any of that up, Reverend Richard? We can give ourselves away to our community, to our family, to our friends, to our work, to all that we're called to do in the greatest way. You are God's gift to the world. Oh, man. <laughs> wow, that's blasphemous. Wow. I'm God's gift to the world. You know what's funny is <laughs> there's been a few times when people have accused me of having that type of thinking, but when they mentioned it and talked about me being God's gift to the world, they it was a, basically a phrase of derision. You know, it went along the lines of, "So who do you think you are? Do you think you're God's gift to the world?" And um, it was supposed to make me realize that I was an heir. And so he, <laughs> oh man, holy smokes. Hang on a second here, backing up the audio on this one. So I'm God's gift to the world. Please tell me that again. 
then we can give ourselves away to our community, to our family, to our friends, to our work, to all that we're called to do in the greatest way. You are God's gift to the world. Gives a whole new meaning to Christmas. Maybe that's why these guys are, you know, reading all of these uh, Christmas passages from the Bible and making about them because they've embraced this theology that they are God's gift to the world. Wow. And as you give yourself away at higher and higher levels, as you serve the people around you, you fulfill the purpose for which God sent you. So I want you to have a great day today. I want you to have a great week. Thanks. And I want you to have a great day because you're being the best expression of you. God bless you, friend. Have a great week. And I look forward to being with you next week. Okay, I'm officially creeped out. I think I might have to <laughs> keep an eye on him and maybe bring him back in the future. <sighs> so uh, are you God's gift to the world? Apparently you are, without a single Bible verse to back any of this up. This is just what he believes. But see, that's isn't that how we approach things regarding God nowadays? Any opinion is as good as the next. And, well, Rev. Richard, his opinion, he believes that you are God's gift to the world. Huh, not Jesus Christ, but you. Wow, that's great. What a lame gift. I mean, seriously. I mean, even if you were to stick a bow on my head and, and present me to the world and say, Look, world, this is Chris. Chris is God's gift to you. Most people would say, Hmm, yeah. Um, is this part of that whole white elephant thing that we do during Christmas time? Um, can we re-gift him? You know, <laughs> um, I'm not so sure that uh, we want that gift. Uh have you taken a look at that gift? That gift is, yeah. So there you go. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. 
But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slammed dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Pageant are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, this program is like a big, cold, wet bucket of theological water. It can be a little bit startling. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, to keep bringing this important radio project to you and to the world. Uh, if you don't already partner with us financially, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, upon arrival, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, the one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. 
From the Christian Post, the headline reads, uh, it reads, Christians grieve death of Christopher Hitchens. <sighs> yeah. Now, here's the deal. The subhead of it is, uh, and they share hopes for deathbed conversion. Truly, that is that is something that is hoped for. Uh, that being the case, I'm not so um, certain that, that that's what happened. But anyway, this is written by Aaron Son of the Christian Post. And uh, here's what it says. Uh, Christians everywhere have been responding in grief and sadness over the death of famed atheist Christopher Hitchens, who passed away late Thursday evening after a year-long battle with esophageal cancer. From pastors to theologians alike, all expressed pain and sorrow over the recent news, which Vanity Fair was the first to announce. The magazine reported that Hitchens had died from pneumonia, a complication from his stage 4 cancer. He was 62 years old. President of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Albert Muller, an influential leader among evangelicals, also tweeted multiple posts in response to Hitchens' passings. Uh, He said, Hitchens' death is an excruciating reminder of the consequences of unbelief. We can only pray others will believe. And immediately after his first post, Muller added, Few things are so valued in this life as brilliance and eloquence. Neither will matter in the world to come. Quote, the point about Christopher Hitchens is not that he died of unbelief, he concluded, but that his unbelief is all that matters now. It's unspeakably sad. Author of the New York Times bestseller, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Hitchens is considered one of the most prominent figures of the new atheism movement, uh, though the English-born author has described himself as anti-theist. The heavy smoker and drinker was diagnosed with esophageal cancer last year and underwent several treatments from radiation therapy to a specially designed treatment created in part by outspoken evangelical scientist Francis Collins, which mapped out Hitchens' entire genetic makeup to target damaged DNA. During his treatment, Christians offered their prayers for the atheist and also established the Everybody Pray for Hitchens Day last year. But Hitchens advised believers not to trouble deaf heaven with your bootless cries, unless, of course, it makes you feel better. He also told CNN last year that he would not turn to Christ on his deathbed, at least not while he's lucid. It was just two months ago in October when Hitchens again affirmed his atheist beliefs, declaring that there is no absolute truth and no supreme Leader, Along with other Christian leaders, atheist-turned-Christian Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ, expressed his grief over Hitchens' death on Twitter. Quote, I was among many who shared Christ with him, so sad that he rejected the gospel, Strobel added. Denny Burke, associate professor of biblical studies at Boyce College, also mourned the death of the unique public intellectual with a rapier wit and an even sharper pen. Hitchens always fascinated me, not merely because of his intellect and and, and his prose, but also because of his independence, Burke penned on his website. He was a darling of the left, yet he remained a firm supporter of the Iraq War. He was a vowed atheist, yet he insisted on the superior quality of the King James Bible and chaffed against gender-neutral translations. He wanted to ban religious arguments from rational discourse, yet he wrote a book with Calvinist intellectual and pastor Doug Wilson. Quote, in the last year of his life, Hitchens wrote some searching essays about his cancer and impending death. He continued, 
He seemed to stand ever resolute in his atheism and to insist that the hour of his demise must be the proving ground of his unbelief. I would like to think that perhaps his skepticism didn't win out in the end, Burke hoped. I would like to think that the gospel he heard from Wilson and others might have broken through just in time as it did for the thief on the cross. Stranger things have happened, and the Lord's arm indeed is not too short to save even in such a moment. Nevertheless, we may never have any evidence of this on this side of glory that the light finally broke through to Hitchens. Pastor Douglas Wilson, a conservative reformed evangelical theologian who was featured alongside Hitchens in the documentary Collision, wrote in detail about his relationship with the British-American journalist and his thoughts on his death on Christianity Today. The two had together created the book, Is Christianity Good for the World?, a small compilation of their debates together and had since gotten to know each other better. Christopher knew that faithful Christians believe that it is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment, Wilson penned. He knew that we believe what Jesus taught about the reality of damnation. He also knew that we believe, for I told him that in this life the door of repentance is always open. We have no indication that Christopher ever called on the Lord before he died. And if he did not, then scriptures plainly teach that he is lost forever. But we do have every indication that Christ died for sinners, men and women, just like Christopher Hitchens. We know that the Lord has more than once hired workers for his vineyard when the sun was almost down. Wilson also knew that Hitchens was concerned with that aspect of faith, discussing several times with interviewees the idea of deathbed conversion. Though he assured everyone that if anything like that would happen, it would be certain that the cancer or the chemo had gotten into his brain. It appeared as though Hitchens had entertained the notion, Wilson observed. When Christopher gave those interviews, he was manifestly in his right mind, and the thought had clearly occurred to him that he might not feel in just a few months the way he did at present. Like Burke, the Christ Church pastor and prolific speaker hoped that Hitchens had accepted Christ during his final moments and had a gracious twist at the end. We commend Christopher to the judge of the whole earth, who will certainly do right, Wilson declared. Justin Taylor, vice president of editorial at Crossway, also captured a hint of what Wilson saw in Hitchens. On the Gospel Coalition website, he uploaded the debate documentary Collision, finding the final scene with Wilson and Hitchens especially telling of what Hitchens thought of God and religion. The scene portrayed both men in the back seat of a car, discussing, debating itself, as well as Hitchens' difference between fellow atheist Richard Dawkins. Quote, If I could convert everyone in the world, well, not convert, if I could convince to be a non-believer, and I'd really done brilliantly, and there's only one left, one more, and then it'd be done, there'd be no more religion in the world, no more deism, theism, Hitchens stated. I wouldn't do it. And Dawkins said, What do you mean you wouldn't do it? He recalled. I said, I don't quite know why I wouldn't do it. And it's not just because there'd be nothing left to argue with and no one left to argue with. It's not just that, though it would be that. Somehow, if I could drive it out of the world, I wouldn't, Hitchens revealed to Wilson. And the incredulity with which he, Dawkins, looked at me stays with me still, I've got to say.
This morning when I heard the news, I was immediately reminded of a very important verse from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet, writing the word of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, starting there, says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And the cross-reference from the New Testament to that passage is found in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 where it says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And today's a sad day. Today's a very sad day. It's the day when we mark that one of the most formidable public opponents of the Christian faith has gone into eternity. And all the evidence shows that he's gone into eternity in unbelief, unrepentance, and unforgiveness. This is not a day to rejoice. This is a day to mourn. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Christian. We will be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Technically, we're not quite up to hour number two yet, but today's program is a little bit, well, different. Now, I'm going to segue into our sermon review music, but this isn't a traditional sermon review here at Fighting for the Faith today. I kind of want to grind a point. That's what I do. Always grinding points. Yeah, the person who denies that I have an agenda hasn't listened to the program. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service now what we're doing here is a little bit different okay and the reason i'm playing the good sermon review music is because we're going to start off with um a commencement speech from the recent graduation ceremonies conducted at southern baptist theological seminary by dr albert muller now the name of his commencement address is The Gospel as the Foundation for Christian Ministry. But I've got to kind of, I've got to make a point here in order for you to get the full setup. Okay? As I was reading today about the death of Christopher Hitchens, I was reminded of a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Now, I, I haven't done a lot of reading in Spurgeon, but uh, I had seen this quote before from something called Another Word Concerning the Downgrade, which I had... Long story. But anyway, Another Word Concerning the Downgrade, I think it was from like 1886, 87, somewhere in there, in a publication called The Sword and the Trowel. And um, in there, it's a, it's a fascinating read. If you Google it, I'm sure you can find it. But... In there, um, Spurgeon talking about the downgrade that he was fighting in his time, and we're fighting a downgrade like you wouldn't believe in our time. He said this, Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Let me read that again. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Now, that being said, I want to just do a little comparative work. Okay, We're going to compare two lectures. They're both very short that mention Christmas and talk about the Bible from two completely perspectives regarding its historicity. One is Dr. Albert Muller, and the other is Ian Lawton of the C3 Exchange up in Michigan. Now, if you're going, why does Ian Lawton sound familiar? Let me kill the music here. The reason why Ian Lawton sounds familiar is because of the fact that um, this is the church 
a few years ago that made national made the the national media probably international if you think about it uh, because they tore their cross down and changed their name to the C3 exchange which they thought better reflected where they were theologically this is a church who decades ago had begun questioning the authority of scripture began casting doubt on God's word and Ian Lawton was the pastor that they called um after the pastor who who started them down this road um you know moved on I don't know maybe he died I forget the exact reason why he uh, he left ministry but Ian Lawton was the next logical step for them and so I want you to listen just compare and contrast because when you hear it back to back when I was preparing for the program when I listened to these things back to back it the it was night and day it was uh, it's such a stark contrast it's almost jarring we'll start off with uh Dr. Albert Muller this is a man who believes in the inerrancy of scripture this is a man who not only believes in the inerrancy of scripture he publicly stakes his reputation on it. He defends it. He lucidly and in a very scholarly way defends the historical inerrancy, the inerrancy period of Scripture. And listen to the conviction that he has. And then compare that to Ian Lawton's little homily entitled Thriving in the Holidays, where he openly denies the historicity and inerrancy of Scripture and calls the Bible story about Christmas a myth. And, I mean, see who's, you know, who's telling you the truth. Who really has a message that has meaning? And then remember Charles Spurgeon's quote, that there are some preachers who are making infidels, and it's those preachers who are casting doubt and stabbing at faith, who are far more dangerous than men like Christopher Hitchens, who are avowed atheists. And I think you'll understand what I'm saying. So without any further ado, we're going to start off this little compare and contrast with Dr. Albert Muller and his commencement speech entitled, The Gospel as the Foundation for Christian Ministry. Here we go. It's absolutely wonderful to sing those great Christmas carols together. Even in an age in which many hymns are decreasingly known, those carols still resound. It's wonderful to hear them sung and to hear them sung with accuracy and articulation. For about half a century in this institution, there served a professor by the name of Inman Johnson, whose task it was to make sure that young ministers spoke clearly He thought that, for one thing, Christmas was being lost in a fog of inarticulation. As he said, the hymn or the carol, Silent Night, often is misleading to those who hear it, who instead of hearing round yon virgin, hear round John virgin. And as he said, we must remember to articulate carefully so that the hymn is about the divinely chosen mother of Christ and not about a rotund but virtuous young man. (laughs) Once at the at the end of his tenure here he was asked what he had spent half his life 
doing, and the greater part of it, half a century doing, and he said that he spent half a century getting Mary and Joseph out of the manger <laughs> because of the careless readings of Luke 2.16 in which if we let familiarity, let the words come too quickly, can sound like we're saying, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. <laughs> There's a strategic comma there in English translation such that Mary and Joseph are there but not in the manger. But we had the privilege of singing those carols this morning and declaring the truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are comforted by words and by sounds that are so familiar to us that announce to us the importance of a season that we have just entered. And we're here today because of the importance of an event that we're here to observe. Certain events require ceremony. And graduation is one of those events. In an institution like Southern Seminary, commencements seem to come with astonishing velocity. The school is 152 years old, and this is the 208th commencement ceremony. It marks my 37th opportunity to preside at this ceremony. And by the time students graduate from Southern Seminary, they are old hands at receiving diplomas and degrees. Yet at the same time, this experience never grows stale. Something too important is happening here, and something happening once again. This is not just a gathering of graduates who are about to be recognized for their achievement. It is a final opportunity to gather an assembly of pastors, missionaries, ministers, and servants of the church as they are ready to go out to the ends of the earth. The formality of the occasion marks this as a part of our academic heritage. These graduates join a long line of those who have received the blessings of education, and learning and are now to be recognized for their achievement by the awarding of degrees. The faculty and guests gathered here testify to the worthiness of these graduates and their new stewardship of knowledge. Anyone familiar with higher education would recognize virtually everything that will take place here today, right down to the details of the ceremony and the patterns of the regalia. But then again, they could well miss the whole point. That outside observer would assume that we are now setting these graduates loose to make their mark in the world to make their profession proud and to earn the respect of the age. That is what most schools do at this level of higher education, but that is not what we are about. This commencement is not about something less than those aims, but something far greater. We are here because we believe that God is soon to bring glory to his name through the gospel service of these ministers who will graduate today. Consider with me the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This puts what we are doing here today into an entirely new context. 
How did these graduates arrive at this moment? Each would have his or her own story, but in this text, the Holy Spirit gives us the account of the Apostle Paul. In truth, however, this is not only his story, it is the story of every God-called minister of Jesus Christ. Paul gives thanks to God for his calling, his ministry. He serves, as he says, by divine appointment. His strength for the task and his appointment for service were given to him by Christ Jesus our Lord who judged him faithful. But Paul fully understands that there is nothing in him that commends him for this appointment. Furthermore, he acknowledges that he is, as he says elsewhere, the least likely of all to receive such an appointment. Why? Just look at the apostle's words. He was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of Christ and his church. Now, stronger words than these can hardly be imagined. He confesses that he was the enemy of Christ. He had committed blasphemy, denying that Christ is the promised Messiah. He persecuted the followers of Christ, putting them to death. And he arrogantly set himself as the enemy of Christ himself. In other words, there is no human logic that can explain how such a man would be appointed to gospel service. How could Christ's enemy become his apostle to the Gentiles? Paul explains that this is all a great demonstration of the infinite redeeming mercy of God in Christ. The grace of God overflowed for me, he says to Timothy, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We dare not miss what Paul is saying here. He is telling Timothy that he has been called into the ministry by grace, by the sheer unmerited favor of God. The one who was God's enemy is called to be his faithful servant. The dramatic contrast in Paul's life sets the stage for our understanding. We remember Paul as Saul, holding the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen for his faith and for his testimony to Christ. We remember Paul as Saul ravaging the church of Christ, scattering the believers and chasing them even into foreign territories, arresting, persecuting, and hating the followers of Christ, and thus hating Christ himself. But we also know Paul was the surrendered sinner on the road to Damascus, arrested by grace as he went to arrest the followers of Christ. We know him as the great apostle to the Gentiles who takes the gospel throughout much of the known world and sends it ever onward. We know Paul, the loving pastor, who suffers willingly for the church, the courageous defender of the faith who stares down its enemies, the intrepid missionary for the cause of the gospel, the joyful preacher of the cross of Christ. How do we explain this? Before looking to Paul's own explanation, let us also ponder this. Even though this is the testimony of the Apostle Paul, it is also the testimony of every one of these graduates. They too were once enemies of Christ. They too once hated the very things they now love. Like Paul, they have received their call to the ministry by the sheer grace of God, his unmerited and extravagant favor. Their rebellion may have been less conspicuous, but it was no less real. Their transformation may have been less famous, but it was no less spectacular. These graduates are not now to be set loose because we recognize today their worthiness. No, we openly declare their unworthiness in and of themselves, even armed with their newly minted degrees. They have been called to this service by God, and it is he who has made them worthy by the gift of his grace. How are we to understand this? Paul's answer is simple. Just remember the gospel. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
Behind the call to ministry is the salvation of a sinner, the vanquishing of Christ's enemy, the life's transforming power of God's grace. The gospel is itself the foundation of the Christian ministry, and Paul wants Timothy to understand this clearly. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The confluence of this commencement with the majesty and glory of Christmas only serves to remind us of the centrality of the incarnation of Christ to the gospel and of the purpose of his coming to save. The most trustworthy statement we will ever know is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, above all other declarations, deserves full acceptance. This is far more than the reason for the season. It is the only reason for our hope. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, wrote John. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, reminds Paul. The babe of Bethlehem is none other than the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, writes John. These graduates know themselves as Paul knew himself. They know themselves to be sinners who desperately needed and need the salvation that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. They know of their need for the forgiveness of their sins, and they found that forgiveness in the cross and resurrection of Christ. They know that they did not and do not deserve the gift of salvation, but they declare that this free gift comes to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him for salvation, rescue, redemption, and peace. They would know no greater joy this day than that anyone here who does not know this salvation that comes through Christ would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, right now. They, like the Apostle Paul, now stake their lives on these truths. In the same way, they, like Paul, know that the ministry they have received is just as much a demonstration of God's grace and unmerited favor as is their salvation. With Paul, as he continues to teach us in this passage, they know that they have received mercy in order that in themselves and in their ministries, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were called to believe in him for eternal life. Christ called them, at least in part, so that the world would wonder why. So that the only answer to that question is the matchless grace of God. In every believer, the perfect patience of Christ is demonstrated, but in the life and calling of the minister, it is demonstrated all over again. That is why I say that far more is going on here than the world would understand. This is not merely a commencement. This is a gathering for the declaration of God's determination to save sinners who come to know and to trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. This is the rendezvous of transformed sinners called into the ministry of Christ by grace now ready for deployment. They have received and achieved much during their seminary studies. They have received a theological education and ministry preparation of the first order. They have finished this course and they have reached the end of this season. They will never sit together in a single room on earth again. We have come to love them and to cherish them and now we put a diploma in their hands and show them the door. Who is worthy even to witness such a thing? Not one of us. And yet Christ has mercifully allowed us to be 
today in this place witnesses of this very thing. What do we say to this? What can we say to this? The Holy Spirit gives us the words through the Apostle Paul to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Indeed. Amen and amen. You know, I never get tired of hearing the gospel, ever. I never get tired of it. I feel like... I feel like my, my kids, when they were tiny, and they would climb up on my lap with a book and ask me to read a book. And at the end of the book, they'd say, read it again, read it again, read it again. I never get tired of hearing about how Christ died for my sins, ever. If you've listened to this program for any length of time, it seems to be pretty much that's the main point of this program. But listen to the conviction in which he delivered that. Never once casting even the remotest shadow of a doubt or darkening of the mind on the biblical texts, but preaching it with the conviction that it is truly the word of God, inerrant, inspired, infallible, and containing the only message that truly matters, the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And then compare that to this. It's going to seem like a cheap shot, but this is the difference between faith and unbelief. Ian Lawton doesn't believe. And here's his Christmas time sermon entitled, Thriving in the Holidays. See if you notice a difference. One of the scenes from Charlie Brown's Christmas special always stays in my mind where Charlie Brown is looking into his empty mailbox and he shouts out, hello in there. (laughs) And then he laments, rats, no Christmas cards for me. Nobody likes me. Why do we have to have a Christmas holiday to remind me of how unpopular I am? (laughs) Christmas can be the best of times and the worst of times. If you're looking forward to spending time with family and with friends, if you're looking forward to exchanging gifts, if you look forward to all of the hoopla around Christmas and maybe taking time off, then it's a time you not only look forward to, but you wish it would never end. If, on the other hand, Christmas is a time where you dread, maybe because you'll be away from family, Or maybe even worse, you'll be with your family, but you'll feel isolated (laughs) with your family. Maybe you dread the whole notion, all of the reminders of what Christmas means and where you've been on your own spiritual journey. Now, the reality is for most of us that it's a combination of both of those things. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. There are things we look forward to and there are things that we dread. I want to point something out. Notice here, compared to Albert Muller, I mean, you know, both of them mentioned Christmas, but Albert Muller's presentation of the gospel proclaimed Christ and what he did for us. Christ was glorified in that commencement speech. 
And in this spiritual talk from Ian Lawton from the C3 Exchange in in uh, Michigan, it is so narcissistic and self-focused. This doesn't exalt Christ. This is just about you trying to overcome, you know, the difficulties of getting along during, you know, the challenging holiday season. How do you feel about Christmas this year? What is it that the Christmas story does for you? Does the Christmas story give you hope, give you encouragement? Or does it take you back to a place that you don't want to go? Now, my next question is, which Christmas story is it that you remember? Because there are a number. How many of you saw the movie a couple of years ago that was called Four Christmases? Four Christmases. The, the leading characters in this movie were Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon. They were an unmarried couple with no kids. who were having a great time together. And they managed to avoid their families every Christmas by taking a vacation out of the country. So they'd make up all of these elaborate lies and justify it on the basis that you can't write the word families without including lies. <laughs> you think about it. <laughs> so they made up the fact that they'd go and do charity work. In this case, it was in Fiji. And they'd tell their families that they'd be going there to do chari charity work to justify not being with them. On this particular Christmas, their flight's cancelled. They're left stuck at home and they decide to go and visit all the families, all four of the families, including the step-families. On the way to seeing all of these four families, they're reunited with all of their worst, dysfunctional, cobwebs in the cupboard, terrible memories, dysfunction. They're faced with all of it on the one day. They have all these incredible experiences where they're reminded why it is that they try and avoid their families every Christmas. And yet, at the end of this experience going around and visiting the families, they come to some major realizations, one of which is they do indeed want to have kids together. As messed up as families can be, they know that that is part of the rich tapestry of being human and family together. So they decide to have a kid. The next Christmas, they try and have that kid quietly without any of the families finding out because there will be more trouble than it's worth for the families to know. But what do you know? They, they happen to have the very first New Year's baby the next year. <laughs> Television crews arrive, cameras. <laughs> And their families find out about their new baby. Now the reality is, there isn't just one Christmas story. There are at least four. Multiple Christmas stories. There is no one Christmas story. There is no one set of verifiable facts around Christmas. There's just the myth of Christmas. Notice, he's attacking God's word, casting doubt on it. Now, you know the definition of myth? Things that never happened, and yet they always happen. They never happened, and yet they always happen. Which parts of the Christian myth do you resonate with? Is it the magical elements of the story? Is it the parts of the story that include a virgin birth, 
angels, dreams, an incredible star that crosses the sky, all the magical elements of Christmas? Or for you, is it the harsher, more real, earthy elements of Christmas? The parts of the story where a young couple are surprised by their pregnancy, don't know what to do with their pregnancy, try to escape from the powers that be of their day, doubt everything, don't know where to turn, spend years on the run. Which Christmas myth do you resonate with? Is it the magical Christmas or the real and earthy Christmas or is it a combination of both? Maybe you look to the magical elements of the Christmas story to remind you of those magical parts within yourself that can rise above struggle. <sighs> magical parts within myself, really. I've got magical bits in me. That can find wisdom in wounds. That can find growth through grief. That can find compassion and character through challenge. Maybe you look to that part of yourself which seems to be greater than you, and yet it's intimately, deeply within you. Maybe you find courage in the Christmas story to overcome the odds of your life, to face your families face-to-face, -face, your demons face-to-face, -face, your memories face-to-face, -face, and find an inspiration to keep going. Maybe there's something in the Christmas story that gives you courage, strength to face the powers that be in our world, the powers that would want to squash us. And the story gives you some inspiration to stand strong against those powers. Stand strong, stand up, and keep moving. Which Christmas story is it that you resonate with, and what does it do for you? One of my favorite Christmas stories, Notice how bent in on itself unbelief is. Doubt is all about me. Stories comes out of Spain. Spanish pastor is sitting in his study on Christmas Eve, trying to come up with a new sermon. He wants to come up with something fresh, something meaningful that he could say in his Christmas sermon, but nothing's coming. And then there's a knock at the door. He goes down, answers the door, and finds a woman who's distraught at his front door. Sobbing. And through her tears, he manages to find her story, which is that her son has been arrested. He's being held at the police station. She asks the pastor, would you come with me down to the police station, see if you can talk to them for me? He agrees and goes with her. They spend some time with the police, the end result of which is that the son will not be released and will spend Christmas in prison. The woman is devastated. You know what that would be like. You can imagine that. And so the pastor and the mother, they leave the police station feeling discouraged, feeling beaten, feeling broken. They leave that police station and walk back through the snow-drenched streets of Barcelona. As they're walking, they see up in front of them about 30 yards ahead, a, a very small figure. And as they come close, they realize it's a young girl, probably no more than eight years old. And she's hunched over. She too is crying. She too is lost. 
And they walk up next to this young girl and the pastor says, what's happened, sweetheart? She says, I got lost. And my mom's always been telling me, I've got to walk with Jesus. So I went into the church and I found the baby Jesus and here I am carrying it. I'm carrying the baby Jesus because mama says I've got to walk with Jesus. And the pastor, full of compassion, full of gentleness from his experience just now at the police station, takes his coat off, puts it around the shoulders of this young girl and says, let's walk with Jesus together. And so they walk through the streets of Barcelona, a pastor, a mother, an eight-year-old girl carrying the baby Jesus from the church nativity scene. And they walk through the streets together. Now, to me, that is a Christmas story with all the elements of life and humanity, a discouragement followed by a moment of hope. You'll notice that the Jesus in his story isn't real, just a lifeless prop. A setback followed by a moment of community. Despair followed by the possibility that when people share their humanity, incredible things happen, magical things happen, things that are far more incredible than a virgin birth or a star in the sky. More incredible than a virgin birth. Unbelievable. Where people rise above the challenges and find a way forward. And maybe the language in that story is a little old-fashioned for you, maybe a little sentimental for you, but take the, take the sentiment of the story and take it with you through Christmas. Which Christmas story are you resonating with this year? Just before we left Sydney in the year 2000, we had a garage sale. Notice that uh, there's no good news here. None. Now, as was the custom in the inner suburbs of Sydney, when you finished your sale, you put the leftovers out on the, on the sidewalk, and they're fair game for anyone who's, who's walking by. So when we'd finished our sale, we put the leftovers out on the street, Sure enough, the next morning, it's all gone, like magic. It's brilliant. We didn't think too much about it after that until a couple of days later, we're walking through the streets and we see a homeless man pushing a shopping cart. Perched up at the top of his shopping cart, proud as punch, is our old plastic Christmas tree that we'd left out on the street. He'd picked up our tree and he'd placed it on his shopping cart. He'd decorated it with tinsel and with colorful balls. He pushed it through the streets, proud as punch. Now, as you can imagine, we smiled when we saw our Christmas tree. We still smile when we think about that man wheeling our Christmas tree through the streets, just a small glimmer of hope in this man's miserable life. We didn't do anything intentional. We didn't give it to him. It wasn't an act of generosity. We were inadvertent heroes. We're accidental supporters of this man. Now, to me, this is a brilliant, just a snapshot of the Christmas story in its full breadth. Misery with just 
glimmers of hope. Despair which is punctuated by moments of humanity. A shared possibility. There's a lot of talk about a war on Christmas. So-called war on Christmas. Let me talk more about that next week because we're coming close. Now, I fully am convinced there's a war on Christmas, but it doesn't go through Walmart. This is where the war on Christmas is being fought. In Ian Lawton's so-called church is, well, they're fighting on the side of the enemy. To the hour of 11. But at this point, let me just say that no matter what your religious background, no matter what your political perspective, there are things that draws us all together, that cross all those boundaries of difference. Let this Christmas be a time where you step beyond those things that divide and into all those things that unite. Let this Christmas be a time where you step beyond the memories that haunt you Heal them and become one again with your family. Step beyond all those challenges, all those fears, all those anxieties. Step beyond them and believe again in the magic that resides within you. Believe in the magic that resides in you. Yep, this is a message that will send people to hell which again can be born this Christmas. The love and the peace which is within me acknowledges that same love and peace within every one of you. Namaste. Uh, Yeah, he uh, ended the uh, sermon with Namaste. Do I need to say anything more? The contrast couldn't be sharper between belief and unbelief. You get rid of the authority, inerrancy, and inspiration of Scripture, and you are left with a namaste spirituality of believing about the magical bits inside of you. You are left with no hope, no forgiveness, no salvation. And some kind of spiritualized story where Jesus is just some kind of a symbol. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation from the wrath of God that's soon to come. So there you go. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, well, not tomorrow, Monday. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.